hear the word of our God. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of Almighty God. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that as we look at this so countercultural message from our King, as we gaze on things of the heavenly kingdom that do not reflect how we feel here below, we ask that we would believe our King, put our hope in Him, and find our blessing in Him alone. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When, uh, when I was uh, a kid, there, there was this place in the fellowship hall at my church where we had, uh, a, in my opinion, as a pastor looking back, a far too large picture of every pastor that the church had had since they could take a picture of the pastor. Um, I think it went all the way back, although some of them were these little tiny ones from the 1700s. Uh, but, uh, but then all of a sudden, around 1900, the pictures got really big. And they, they, were, they were huge. I'm glad I don't have a picture up like that. Just awkward. Uh, and I think, I think several of the pastors felt that way uh, over the years. But most of the guys, they were all black and white photos, trying to look very uh, uh, um, professional. And, but most of them still had a smile. Most of them you could see... A, a man, one of them I knew, you could see it all in the picture. This was a man of comfort and compassion. Uh, another man, you could look in his face, I knew him as well, you could see a man of joy. Uh, but one of those pastors was from a certain era of portraits, and he looked like he was sucking on a lime. He just... As a kid, I thought, that guy must have been the most sour pastor, the most miserable man. I'm glad he wasn't my pastor. And then in high school, I noticed something. In a different part of the church, there was a plaque over a door. I was finally tall enough to read the plaque. And it was, it was the nursery wing dedicated in loving memory 
to that pastor and his wife. And I remember thinking, did the, did the portrait not rightly represent the man? He was from an era when everyone apparently thought the best way to take a portrait was to scowl or look serious. But did the congregation seemingly love him and his wife as, as people that would be the natural people to dedicate a nursery in memory of? Did, did that man crouch down and interact with toddlers at the door? I, I really had some of these thoughts. I, I knew his theology hadn't been good, but I didn't know anything else about this man. He'd lived a hundred years earlier. Sometimes, sometimes those old photos don't rightly represent the person. And I'm afraid that sometimes Christianity doesn't rightly represent the gospel. And I think sometimes we might read a portion like our focus today. Let me just read half of two different verses to you. This is what we're focusing on this morning. From verse 21, the second half of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I think sometimes Christianity, we, we misrepresent the gospel by living as if those statements by Christ are commanding us to be sour and depressed and grieved and never to be thought of as enjoying this life in any possible way. Never to be thought of as being happy as Christians, but only as stoic and sad. Is that what our Lord is saying? I, I think that we sometimes think that's what he's saying. Uh, one of the authors I enjoy reading that's still alive, there aren't a lot that are alive that I like reading, but David Murray wrote a book a few years ago called The Happy Christian. And David Murray is a very conservative, biblical scholar. And so his friends... Some of his friends actually came to him. I forget exactly what they said, but it was something along the lines of, oh no, you've, you've joined the health and wealth gospel. Because you wrote a book, The Happy Christian. And I think he said something like, just read the book before saying that. Because of course that wasn't what he was getting at. But, but that tells us a lot, doesn't it? That if we, in our Christianity, see a book with a title, The Happy Christian that we are suspicious of what that guy is going to try to teach us. I think that says it all. And it shows that we're misunderstanding Christ here in this passage. He makes this very strong statement, weeping now, laughter later. But if we think about what the curse is, we we know that it doesn't play out simply as live all of this life grieving and all happiness later uh, or all laughing now and only grief later because non-Christians grieve at times too. And they have their serious moments too. So what is Christ getting at here in these verses? I chose our Old Testament reading 
because I think it actually helps us get to the same point Christ is making, but in a slightly different way. What Christ is getting at here is blessed are those who know the right times to mourn and grieve and the right times to laugh. And cursed are those who laugh at the wrong times when they ought to be grieving and mourn over the things that they ought to be celebrating. Remember how Solomon talked about it. There's a season for everything under heaven. There is a time for each of these things. Let me read one of those verses again. This comes from Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now when we read Solomon there, we know he's not saying there's a time to weep, but when you're in heaven, you get to dance. There's a time to mourn, but when you're in heaven alone, you get to laugh. No, when we get to heaven as believers, there will be no more mourning, no more weeping. The tears will be wiped away and there will only be laughter and maybe dancing. But laughter and dancing aren't excluded from the Christian life. Christ is not saying that. He's saying what Solomon is saying. We need to know the season for each thing. The season for each thing. Solomon worked long and hard to figure out the season for each thing, and he failed a lot. And as an old man, he's telling us, there's a season, make sure you get the seasons right. Or, or we could phrase it slightly different than Solomon. Instead of season, we could say object. Make sure you know what is the object of tears and what ought to be the object of laughter. Because the world doesn't know and often gets these things wrong. And as Christians, we often get these things wrong as well. We, we are not immune to cultural captivity. We can be like the world as Christians. And Christ is telling us there's blessing in knowing the right time to mourn and the right object for mourning And there's a curse when we don't know that. So, if that is the case, can we discern as kingdom citizens those things which ought to cause us grief and mourning? And this morning I I want to reflect on three things that are the right objects of our grief and mourning which the world often gets wrong and which sometimes we get wrong, so that we might know the right things, that our tears ought to flow at the right times as kingdom citizens. I I was reflecting, even as I prayed the pastoral prayer this morning, this may seem like an oversimplified three things to grieve over to some of you, because they tend to be three things I cover in prayers very frequently in our church. And so hopefully you you get to the end of the sermon and say, yeah, I knew all of that. And that's great. Are we practicing all of this? So let's start in the most important place. 
the Bible as a whole makes it very clear that it is always in season to mourn over sin. It is always in season. Solomon can list a lot of things that have their season and then there's the opposite season. But Solomon cannot list there's a time to engage in sin and a time to abstain from sin. That's not one of his conclusions, is it? Even though in the book he makes it clear he engaged in a lot of sins over the years. But his clear conclusion at the end of the book, fear God and keep his law. Why? Because I didn't. I'm an old man and I don't want you to make the same mistake Solomon is saying. And, and we ought to take that to heart. The whole scripture presents sin as always in season for our grief. There are two ways in which we ought to grieve over sin, and those are two of our three points. So the first one is the sin of your own heart. It's always in season to grieve over the sin which you have in your own heart, in your own mind, flowing from your own tongue, practiced with your body. It is always in season to grieve over your sin. The Bible teaches us that sin is when our hearts and our actions do not conform to the law of God. Anytime we break his law or fail to keep his laws, then we are sinning. But realize that when we grieve over sin, we'll only really grieve over what God tells us sin is if we first accept a premise that there is a God. And he has told us what is right and what is wrong. And isn't that part of the problem with laughter that God curses? So much that is joked about, mocked, made light of, and celebrated flows from the fact that either we do not believe there is a God, Or if there is a God, he should define right and wrong based on my preferences and not assume that I will accept his determination, his definition, his law. And so we make light of what God says is serious. And in that way, as Christians, so often we're like the world. We arbitrarily have this idea if we use the word sin at all in the church. It's a definition after the, after the definition of the world and not after God's definition. So it might be you're just being mean. Or the definition might be anything that offends someone else. Or the definition might be whatever offends the majority. Or often not the majority, but those who tell you that they're the majority. Right? And I could go on and on, couldn't I? There's so many things that if the world, and sadly sometimes if the evangelical church in our day speaks of sin at all, it's not talking about an objective thing. God's law broken. 
It's talking about our cultural construct, our social preferences. And then what do we do with God's law? We mock it, we scorn it, we celebrate its breaking, we laugh. David must have known what it was like to have this kind of cultural captivity in his heart because he powerfully prays at the end of Psalm 19 after speaking of how the creation is worshiping God and God's law teaches us how to worship God. He ends the psalm by saying, expose my secret faults. It's not just that David is saying, God, show everyone in the world how sinful I am. David is saying, God, there are faults in my heart which I have suppressed and hidden and denied and defended and excused so much that I'm not even conscious they are sins and offensive to you. So God, expose to me my sin. If we would mourn as God wants us to mourn over our own sin, we need to be like David, mourning over and asking God to expose the things we don't even acknowledge as sin anymore. We, we need to also see what the Bible says of sin, that it controls us and not the other way around. Isn't there so much making light of sin because I can stop whenever I want? It's not a big deal. I'm in control of my destiny. But the Word of God exposes to us what sin is really like. I I like how the Lutheran scholar Linsky puts this. He says, behind the sobbing of the godly, There is a recognition of the merciless power of sin and of our helplessness to ward off this power and to escape. I meant to put that in your bulletins, but I forgot. I also didn't change the date at the top of your bulletins. Karen will be back soon. Don't worry. But but if you would like me to email you this quote, Later this week, I would be happy to do so. I think it is a great spur to right mourning. Behind the sobbing of the godly, there's a recognition of the merciless power of sin and of our helplessness to ward off this power and to escape. That's every reason you need, sinner, to grieve and mourn and weep Sin is not your friend. Breaking of God's law is not your hope. It is merciless and it will crush you and bring you, if not taken care of by God himself, it will bring you to eternal wrath and punishment. It is a merciless power and it will not let you go unless its chains are broken by the love that will not let you go. So as we think about our sin, we ought to weep and mourn 
over it. But I've just hinted at the second half of being godly with, with uh, reference to mourning, haven't I? The love that won't let you go. In his uh, classic and, and brilliant work on the Sermon on the Mount, Martin Lloyd-Jones accuses the church of a double failure in his days, 50-something years ago now. More than 50-something years ago now. And surely true of us today. Hear what he has to say. There's a double failure. There is not a real deep conviction of sin as once was the case. And on the other hand, there is this superficial conception of joy and happiness, which is very different indeed from that which we find in the New Testament. Thus the defective doctrine of sin and the shallow idea of joy working together of necessity produce a superficial kind of person and a very inadequate kind of Christian life. End quote. Now that, there's, there's the church today, isn't it? A shallow understanding of sin. It's not a big deal. Therefore, what, what level of joy are we going to have in the gospel? If the cross wasn't that big of a deal, or maybe wasn't even necessary at all, because our sins aren't that big of a deal, and we can take care of our sins whenever we want to by being better and good, then what, what joy is left in the gospel? But when we understand the merciless power of sin, and then hear him say, your sins are forgiven you. Hear the promise of the Savior, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How, two verses earlier, he said, through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the one who grieves doesn't just wait for eternity to laugh. The scriptures make clear if you mourn over your sin today, you also get joy today in his words as you look to him in faith. Well, a second area of grieving in the Bible is grieving over the sins of others. We don't do that well. And I want to come back to that. So hold on to that. That we will think about how poorly we grieve over the sins of others. But it is important for us to note that we ought to be grieved whenever we see the law of our good creator and king broken. He created the world, the universe in the beginning. And how did he create it after creating, after creating Eve? So Adam wouldn't be alone. He adds a word to what he'd said previously. It's very good. Very good. This universe which I have made. 
This is the king who then gives us a law. And in sin, we are rejecting him and we are harming his world as well. We ought to grieve over that, even when it's not my personal sin. I ought to grieve when I see rebels against the only wise and only holy, righteous, and truly good ruler ever. We celebrate really pathetic rulers. And we sin against the one good ruler. And that ought to break our hearts when we see it happening. One clear example of grief over sin in the Old Testament is when the priest Phineas sees this man committing adultery in the very temple precincts as a joking act of worship in front of everyone. And he is so grieved by it and zealous for the name of the Lord that he takes action. And God, God says, by taking action, this man made atonement. God clearly loves it when his people grieve and hate sin seen elsewhere. Now, we have to respond differently than Phineas. We're in a different situation than he. But do we grieve just as deeply? Our God loves when his people grieve over the sin around us. And we have plenty of opportunity to see sin around us, don't we? The hard thing is not seeing it. The hard hard thing is having a day's peace without feeling overwhelmed by what we see around us. And as we think about the things we see around us, we, we can think about exactly what Christ is saying in this sermon. He says the world doesn't know when to laugh and the world cries when it ought to be celebrating. It gets the things backwards. Two really blatant examples. Just last month, there were a bunch of parades across the land. And at, I'm sure, more than one of them, but one of them, there was a a clip that someone sent me. People send me things to watch, and I end up watching them. and, And they grieve me, so maybe that's a good thing that I'm sent these things. But there was a clip of a group of people taking pride in their identity, but the end of their chant, which was really catchy, but the last line of their chant was, and we're coming for your children. Now, if I were to have been there and stopped them and said, oh, are you really trying to indoctrinate my children? Or, or whatever worse thing you might mean with such a phrase. They, I think, of course, would have said, no. We're making fun of people who think we have an agenda. We're making fun of that. We, don't, we aren't really coming for your children. But, but you see, even that's a problem. Because there was a time when there were certain jokes that were off limits. And surely joking about 
other people's children is something that is off limits. It's celebrating and laughing when we ought to be mourning over what people do or try to do to other people's children. Surely that is not a moment to laugh. Christ says the world gets it backwards. And then just one year previous to that, a situation when there should have been celebrating, but instead, if you opened up any social media, which I never recommend doing such a thing as opening up any form of social media, but if you do such a thing, a year previously, you would have been confronted with dozens of people, dozens of people wailing with their cell phone up in their face, wailing over their rights being taken, with no thought to innocent life, which was being protected. Or, if you want to leave that side of the politics out, the fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned because it hadn't been a legal precedent in the first place. So, pick which of those. Both are things to celebrate... And instead, we grieve. And then we celebrate what we ought not to. Or we can be a little less extreme with some of this. You can think about sitcoms. Look at sitcoms from the 70s, 90s. Look at them today. And what do we laugh about? What is assumed that is okay to laugh about. There are things assumed that are funny to laugh about and they're funny because supposedly we all engage in it, which when a former president of this country did that, not that long ago, he was put on trial for it. See how we have shifted as a culture. We, we shift from President Clinton in trouble for doing things in the Oval Office to, but we all do those things. And it's really funny, isn't it? We laugh over perversions which we ought to mourn. Or maybe something much more subtle. That the divorce rate in the church in America is almost as high as the divorce rate in America itself. The percentage isn't different. Christians aren't staying married longer than non-Christians that much anymore. Not by percentages. And, and so we joke about divorce. Even in churches sometimes we joke about divorce, don't we? The old ball and chain. I once had someone introduce his wife to me as my future ex-wife. I was a 16-year-old. I was utterly shocked. And I, I remember saying to my coworker later, how are they possibly going to be anything but ex soon? If that's how you're introducing your spouse, of course she's going to leave you eventually. You can't joke about some things. You can't do it and think there won't be a consequence that's negative. This is where our culture is, but this is also where the church is today. We grieve over things we ought to celebrate when righteousness prevails. 
and we celebrate iniquity. Well, how do we mourn over all of that? Or do we? Are we like the Pharisees? What did the Pharisees do when they saw sin in others? We actually read it this morning. God, I thank you that I am not like all these perverts out there. Or even that tax collector right there. Right? That, that's not grieving over sin, is it? It's certainly not grieving over sin you perceive in someone who came to worship with you. Isn't that astonishing about that parable? He doesn't even stop to say, Lord, convict that wicked man over there and forgive him. No, that's not grieving over sin. And I fear that that's too much of what we do in the church. Lord, look at these wicked people. Lord, can you believe that so-and-so in the church doesn't even think that's a sin? But how much time do we spend in tears, on our knees, pleading with the Lord for mercy? Like David. David in Psalm 119, which uh, that poem which C.S. Lewis describes as the most brilliant love poem ever written, composed about the law of God. A love poem for the law of God. And what does a love poem for the law of God, what does being in love with God's ways lead to? David says in Psalm 119, verse 136, Rivers of water run down my eyes, because men do not keep your law. In a poem which he spent a hundred verses with multiple instances, confessing his own sin, seeking pardon, now he comes to grief because not not even in the covenant community do men keep God's law and it's a grief to him there's blessing when we grieve over the sins of our community there is actually a very clear passage which shows us from Christ this specific area of grief being blessed by him It's in Ezekiel chapter 9. And I encourage you to read it sometime this week. Read Ezekiel 9. God is declaring He's going to rain His wrath down on Jerusalem. The city of the people of God. The visible church of that day. He's going to rain down His wrath because of their iniquity. Because they do not know Him nor love Him. Because they have followed idols and abominations. He's going to destroy the city. But then He says to Ezekiel, Go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. See what God is doing there. He's saying, I'm judging, but I know those who are mine. And one of the things God says marks out those who are his Are you mourning over the state of the church in your day? Does it bring you grief and sorrow? Do you plead with him about it? And if so, know this. When judgment comes, you will receive mercy. 
What a wondrous passage. Mark their foreheads, those that weep and cry over the abominations of others. Them I will not punish. No, instead, of course, Revelation tells us he will one day wipe the tears we cry away as he brings us into the new Jerusalem. And then there's a third category over which we ought to mourn. The misery of the fall. That's kind of a catch-all, isn't it? We know from the Bible that when sin entered the world, it brought something with it. It brought death. Death. Decay. And so we ought to mourn over those things. There there are things we ought to mourn over that we can't, we don't have the ability to, to say, this is the sin that caused that. Nor should we, by the way. Someone has cancer. It's not the right thing to say. So what was the sin in your life that led to that? But because sin came into the world when, thank you, Adam, he ate that fruit. Now we have this death and decay. So there's decay we ought to grieve over. I I think most generally in the creation around us, the decay that we see. You know, when your favorite tree rots away and has to be cut down. Why is that? Because Adam ate the fruit. There's something to grieve over there. When God created the world, there wasn't rot in the trees. It was very good. When your food molds or when your grass dies or... These all seem really shallow things, right? But there's something right about mourning... Within reason, the decay we see around us in creation, we need to not turn it into our God. There's something right about being concerned about the environment. We do not turn it into our God. We do not worship it. But neither should we as Christians say, ignore the environment. To hell with it. He's going to burn the creation in the end and create a new heavens and new earth. So who cares? That's not the right attitude. We ought to grieve when we see... An island of trash floating around in the ocean. That should cause us grief as Christians. Or coming a little closer to home, our own bodies decaying. The sickness that we experience and feel. There's something right when even something as small as a child falling down and scraping their knee. There's something right about tearing up when you're comforting them. This isn't the way the world was created to be. It's this way because Adam sinned. And we sinned in him. And of course, all the way up through all of our sicknesses, there's a right grief that Donna and Barb are kept over and over and over again from being able to be here with us in person. There's something right about grieving when we have loved ones we have to take care of and therefore we're kept from other areas of joy in life, right? There's something right about that grief. It would be wrong. It would be indeed perverted if we watched others suffering and didn't care. And yet how easy it is to do that so often with so many people. To forget five seconds after we hear that someone's loved one is dying 
to forget and never pray for that again. That we ought to grieve over brokenness and remember the things that are broken because it matters to our hearts. And then, of course, death. Death, the thing behind all the decay. And we can do all the wrong things with grief over death, can't we? Because, of course, the non-Christian grieves over death as well sometimes. But they might do it wrong or in the wrong fashion. Only the believer grieves as one who has eternal hope. So what does the world do not having that hope? Well, on the one hand, you have hopeless grief. A family that would occasionally have the flooring company I used to work for do the floors. Their son had died tragically in high school, I think. And, and they rightly grieved. But this was decades later, and the house was a dark, depressing shrine. See, they had stopped living. They had stopped living when their son... That's not biblical grief. But that's the type of grief the world sometimes has that gets them nowhere. It will not bring eternal hope. Or on the other hand, what does the world often do? And we believers can fall into this as well. Make light of death. As if it isn't a serious thing over which to grieve. I think the worst example of this, and this might offend some of you, but my, my personal thought is that in the evangelical church, we've done a horrible thing by saying we don't have funerals, we have celebrations of life. Now, we ought to rejoice and give thanks to God for the good things in the life that we've lost, but it is right to have a funeral where you grieve because you feel loss over them. That's right and proper. And in the New Testament, we're told to grieve with those who grieve. It's proper. We in the church ought to be, of all people in the world, the ones who provide the best place for grieving when someone dies. And shame on us if we say, no, no, don't cry. This is a celebration. And the world makes light of death in other ways as well, right? By spiritualizing things with uh, various religions and you just go into the oneness of whatever, right? There are a lot of ways the world doesn't grieve when it should be grieving. But I'll, I'll stop with the examples I've given of the church grieving in the wrong way. We ought to grieve over all of these things in their right proportion. But knowing that laughter will come in the new heavens and the new earth, for the Creator is returning, having initiated the new creation in His resurrection from the dead, when He could not be held down, when He rose again with the power and the keys of death and hell, He is returning The believer weeps now knowing that weeping will endure through this night of brokenness. But joy comes with the dawn when the Son of Righteousness appears and we will forever be with the Lord. Even now, we ought to have a taste of that that is beyond description. When we confess our sins, knowing His pardon. 
maybe we should be laughing more often when we have finished praying a prayer of repentance. Laughing with the relief you have at really knowing that you are pardoned indeed. Really knowing that He has cleansed you of all your sin. If you had a hundred pounds on your back and it was removed, wouldn't you sigh and laugh when that was removed? The believer ought to be one who grieves over sin but celebrates its removal and forgiveness. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Your great sorrow leads to joy, but without the sorrow there is no joy. Do you grieve over sin and the fall? Or do you laugh at it and make light? Are you weak and heavy laden? Are you cumbered with a load of care? That's good. That's good. But don't stop there. Beloved, take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. And one day with his hand, he'll wipe the tears away. And laughter will endure for eternity. Blessed, says our Savior, are those who mourn now, for you shall laugh then. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, come before you with this, this heavy topic you have placed before us of sorrow and grief. Lord, we do pray that we of all people would be those who know, know the season of laughter and the season of sorrow. Know when to weep and when to celebrate. Father, we pray that we would weep with hope that the world can see and that we would laugh with joy which the world does not know. All for the glory of our King, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship our God in song. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. 498, stand with me if you're able.